This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, Go as Nothing, recorded May 29, 1994, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Mary Son, I'm going to ask you to uh, repeat your little story and your question. Repeat the story? Yeah. Okay. I was getting ready to go visit my parents in Iowa. And I felt some uh, anxiety about that because other times I've gone to visit them, I found myself becoming devastated and um, very hurt, uh, runaway fleeing, basically. Um, and I talked to you about that just briefly. And I said that even when I go there feeling centered and happy, smiling, they still devastate me. And you said this time go is nothing. And not really comprehending what that meant or what it means now, I found that was like a koan for me while I was there. And when I was in difficult situations, it'd be going through my mind, go as nothing, go as nothing. And I'm not quite sure what happened, but something did happen, and it was like a miracle. Um, I was able to um, avoid or defuse situations that could have you know, brought on an argument or tense moments, and at the end I felt somewhat refreshed by the whole thing, and my my father even uh, said he appreciated my presence. So I'm wondering um, if you could speak on that idea, going as nothing, and how then can I continue to apply this to all aspects of my life? I, I asked you to repeat this for the sake of our listeners, our tape listeners, but also this is really represents a uh, very important turning point in realizing what a spiritual path is, or at least the beginning of it. And so I thought we would analyze a little bit before we delve right into a discussion of what you could do in the future. And before even we uh, do that, I would just like to hear from other people. Has anybody had this experience of uh, going into a, a, a situation that you know is going to be difficult from your past experience with your parents, uh, with perhaps maybe an ex, uh, an ex spouse, uh, someone you've had a relationship with before, maybe a boss that you have to go work with, uh, daily or a coworker and, and try to approach that person from, as Mary Song put it, a centered point of view, try to sort of make a resolution that I'm not going to be, I'm going to be peaceful and I'm going to spread love and joy rather than to get in arguments and have that not work. <laughs> a bunch of hands went up. Let's take some specific examples. Who's going to tell me some specific example? Oh, um, there have been many times that I've gotten really kind of very mindful over a period of time not being at work, and then um, I'd go to work, and I, I would go up, and I, I was very mindful and very aware, and then um, I would start delving into the job, and within half an hour, um, even though I was telling myself, I'm mindful, mindful, um, <laughs> it's lost, completely um, and the chaos of the job and and feeling all kinds of emotions that I was identifying with very intensely. Yeah. Good. That's one on the job. Who else has got one? 
Yeah. Well, uh, many years ago, I had a dispute, a professional dispute with a woman, and uh, it, it lasted for a few years. We even went to court about this, and uh, I uh, have always tried to pray for her after I got on the spiritual path. But I met her in the grocery store some months ago, and I had the same reaction I had before. She's wrong. <laughs> she is, but that's <laughs> And so I went up to her, and I said to her that I was sorry we'd had the dispute. And immediately, because I was feeling pretty Immediately, she started telling me how much uh, difficulty I'd caused her and how much trouble. <laughs> and, I, and, and it was just welling within me, you know, this anger, and, and I could watch it, you know, just this old ego stuff. So I just, I walked, uh, you know, continued with my groceries, and then about, mm, I was almost all loaded and ready to check out, and she came up to say something nice to me because I assumed she was working on herself too. And 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 I I still had this uh, I just wanted to leave her. I didn't even want to see her reaction, but I, I forced myself to stay there and, and submit to her apology for <laughs> and, and, and but it, there was that reaction still. Good. One more, yes. When I train horses and you're not supposed to show them you're afraid or you're this or that to try and be centered and, and, and they know <laughs> <laughs> no matter what you do they know what state you're in you can't fool them at all so you had the same experience of trying to be centered so, with horses yeah, try, and... even though I'm uh, afraid or uptight or uh, because I'm going to be in this situation I try and be centered or relax or whatever I know, nip you and, and kick you and push you up against the stall wall. Yes. <laughs> so with horses, even that's that's interesting because it's even with with life in general. When uh, sometimes when we have to face acts of God, so to speak, uh, you know, a serious illness or something that there's no one to blame, like your your uh, colleague there. You know, we still uh, resolve that when. Uh, Death comes, we're going to face it with grace and peace. And when it comes, ah! <laughs> uh, so it's actually a situation uh, that is a, um, a common to everyone's experience. It's a very common form of suffering. And in fact, that the root of it is the, the root problem of suffering is located just in that situation. Especially when people start on a spiritual path and they get some idea in their head uh, that they can become centered or peaceful or forgiving or whatever, they start to try to make themselves over into another person. Now, this is actually a carryover from worldly life. If you look back on worldly life, you probably had the experience of ever since you were perhaps a teenager, I think probably for most people around the teenage years, we begin to worry about who we are and uh, how people see us, you know, our our peers and our uh, our parents and so forth, and we're always uh, we start trying to make ourselves into something else. We're not happy with who we are or who we think we are, and so uh, we start a lifelong program of programs trying to change ourselves. 
Uh, we, we try to become smarter. We try to become uh, more disciplined, perhaps. We try to become uh, more loving, or we try to become more ruthless if you're going into business or, or whatever. And then there are all sorts of uh, workshops and uh, trainings out there to help you do this. So if, if you uh, lack uh, self-esteem, you can uh, go to a training and get more self-esteem. If you've got too much self-esteem, there are other people who train you to <laughs> get rid of some of that. Well, that's more of what I'm in the business about, actually. <laughs> uh, there are all these trainings. And a spiritual path, uh, first of all, looks just like a, another training. Uh, the only difference here is the image of what a successful, good, quote, person is, is uh, somewhat different than in most worldly trainings. So, uh, especially for our culture anyway, in most worldly trainings, the, the uh, image of a successful person has to do with the success at wealth, at uh, a job, career, uh, uh, success in relationships, um, perhaps success in creativity, and so forth. Um, and you get on a spiritual path and you find this oddball idea that success has to do with being selfless, and it has to do with giving and being loving. And not getting, but giving. Uh, so if you uh, if you get beyond that that first um, anomaly, uh, and that uh, because at first sight, particularly to people in our culture, this this doesn't seem right at all. How can you possibly become happy if you're not getting and you're just giving? But if you start to to get at least some hint that maybe maybe true happiness does lie in this direction you then start to try to make yourself into a selfless, giving person, a peaceful person, a centered person, uh, a forgiving person. And we get this from uh, the examples of great saints and mystics who, uh, in their lives, exemplify these virtues, uh, these principles. And so we look at a, uh, a Mother Teresa of Calcutta, for instance, uh, and we say, oh, that's what a saintly person is like, that I shall then uh, make myself into that sort of person. And for the first part of a spiritual path, uh, indeed, this is what happens, and uh, it's not a bad thing that it happens. We, uh, uh, we start to uh, acquire an interim identity, Instead of being a, uh, a maybe a self-centered, worldly person, we become a spiritual seeker. And you can identify yourself as a spiritual seeker. And a spiritual seeker has certain disciplines, uh, certain precepts they try to follow, and most important, they're looking for the truth, that truth that makes you free, as Jesus said. Uh, and this is a very, uh, a very valuable thing. I found in my experience in my life, it was very valuable. Once I realized that I was a spiritual seeker, that primarily at heart this is what I was, it suddenly made my life a lot simpler because it, it made uh, making priorities in my life a lot simpler. So that anything that advanced my spiritual seeking, um, that is what I would keep in my life. And anything that was an obstacle to it, that's what I would try to get rid of. And... Um, and this applied in, in terms of relationships, in terms of jobs, in terms of uh, all sorts of areas of my life. Suddenly, decisions became a lot easier and uh, because I had some basis on which to make them. But this is actually a false idea. 
Now, when I say it's a false idea, if you are struggling to identify yourself as a spiritual seeker, don't say now, oh, Joel says this is a false idea, I shouldn't do this. Uh, it's very important, as I said, these, this path unfolds in stages, and it's very important to recognize the importance of various phenomena that happens in each stage. But you will soon learn that, uh, as Mary Song learned, that when you uh, try to make yourself into a saint, or some, uh, some semblance of a saint, if not a full-blown saint, and you try to uh, uh, become a peaceful, loving person, and you go into situations where you are going to be challenged, one way or another. Parents are, for most people uh, in our culture anyway, a good one, uh, where your equilibrium is going to be challenged, your peace of mind is going to be challenged, or on a relationship, in a relationship, or on the job, or with horses, or whatever. Uh, you will find that there's no real stability here, that it, it breaks down quickly, and you're thrown right back into the suffering that you had in the first place. Now, this is a very, very valuable thing to have happen. If we know how to, uh, to uh, conduct ourselves as spiritual seekers, we know how to take what apparently negative situations, situations that are painful and that cause us suffering, and then learn from them and that way bring them into our spiritual path. And if we didn't have those experiences, we really wouldn't learn anything in our, in our own experience, in our own right. We'd only be learning from book knowledge. And if you uh, then become very mindful of a situation like that, you ask yourself, what is really the cause of suffering here? And you find out the cause of the suffering isn't now uh, that, that you were before a... Uh, selfish, greedy person, and now you're a loving, kind, peaceful person. Because you're still suffering, even though you've changed over, so to speak. You've changed your values. So the, the cause of suffering can't be uh, the difference between being one sort of person and another sort of person, a selfish person and a selfless person. So what is the cause of suffering here? Well, ask yourself, supposing I wasn't anybody. Neither selfish nor selfless. In the, in the sense that we think about these as images of a personality. Supposing I wasn't anybody here. Who's going to suffer? Concretely, we could look at it this way. Supposing we had a, uh, we were on an, on an archery range, and we put up a red target, and everybody shoots at that target. And you think, well, maybe, maybe the uh, target won't get uh, stuck with arrows if instead of putting up a red target, I put up a white target. So you go put up a white target. Well, everybody still shoots at that. And the arrow's still sticking it. But supposing you don't put up any target. Now, people still shoot their arrows, but where are they going to land? Where are they going to stick? You see what I mean? We can't do anything about people shooting arrows. You might be able to do something in one relationship that you have with one person through 
a long process of communication with them. But generally speaking, we can't do anything about the world shooting arrows at us. Other people shooting arrows at us and the world, the cosmos itself, shooting arrows of illness and ultimately death. We can't do anything about that. So we rightly go to work on ourselves. But we think by changing ourselves, we're going to avoid these arrows. But as long as there's a self there, it's going to get shot with an arrow. There's a wonderful line from Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching about the end of the path. The sage is someone in whom death finds no place to take hold of. Suffering finds no place in them to, to grab hold of. There's no one there when death comes knocking at your door. There's a body. Sure. But otherwise, there's no one there to lose a body. Who's losing the body? So, I said to you, try going as nothing, because you've already tried to go as other things. And by the way, if you have not tried to go as other things, I would suggest go try to go as other things first. Because you really have to convince yourself. You have to get to the point of that kind of frustration. This isn't working. And you also have to know in your own experience this isn't working. This is why it's very important to uh, try to follow the precepts, even if you have some idea of, a, of being a saint in your mind. Making yourself into a saint, so to speak. You have to discover what does selflessness really mean, which is the heart of the path and the heart of all the practices. What does it really mean? And what you are beginning to discover, it doesn't mean substituting one self, a selfish self, for a selfless self. It means something far more profound and radical than that. Because even a self that's now, uh, it's discarded, discarded its selfish clothing and dressed itself up in selfless clothing is still a self. Still something there. In fact, in some ways you'll have more suffering when you try to be this selfless self. You'll have more suffering, as I think most of you experience, just the, fear, uh, the, the sheer uh, disillusionment that it hasn't worked. You've tried so hard to be centered, to be peaceful, to maintain that mindfulness, as Todd put it. And then it falls apart, and then you think, oh, what's the matter with me? Why doesn't this work? It's necessary to go through this. This is how you actually learn and begin to really get a, an experiential handle on what selflessness is. Selflessness has two, or there are two meanings to that word in spiritual, from a spiritual perspective. It means a way of behavior, beginning to behave selflessly, even though you don't yet feel that you are selfless, because that's what's going to show you things. It also refers to a reality that has nothing to do with any practice. It refers to the way things are, not the way they're going to be someday when you become selfless, but the way they are right now, they, the way they were yesterday, the way they've always been and the way they're always going to be. 
It's through the practice of selflessness, then we could say, that you discover the reality of selflessness. You don't, you're not becoming selfless. All you have to do is discover, oh, this is the way things are. Just the way things are. So then it's very interesting, when you start to get a glimmer of this, to try uh, a, a practice like go as nothing. What would that mean? What would it mean to go as nothing? To go home to your parents is nothing. To go to work is nothing. To walk into the horse's stall is nothing. We're beginning to move beyond the the point where uh, uh, words can uh, either communicate the instruction or can communicate the experience. What happened? You have a. You said, "Gee, I don't know what happened, but something happened, almost like a miracle or something." The mind, of course, wants to jump in here now. You see the self and say, "Oh, what's the trick?" Gee, I was some other self. I must have been. How can I do it again? How can I repeat this performance? There's no performance to repeat. That's the way things are. There's no trick. The spiritual path is ultimately not about a trick, learning a new trick. It's about ceasing something. Or when something ceases. Now, let me ask you in more detail, what actually happened uh, while you were at your parents? Especially what was going on in your mind and, and so forth. Well, how, did you, how did you try to do this practice? Well, for one thing, I walked around with a Walkman on and I, I listened to several <laughs> tapes of yours. One was uh, Freedom's Gate uh-huh. and uh, the Ego and the Egolessness I listened to. And several others. So I, I kept reminding myself um, of the possibility. And I stayed very conscious, uh, very aware of what I was doing at all times. And tried to avoid situations where I would be sucked into a battle of some kind. Okay, let's stop right here for a moment. Notice this. Remembrance. The two retreats ago, we, we had a, our topic was devotion, and we talked a lot about remembrance. In all traditions, the remembrance of God, the remembrance of uh, the spiritual path, the remembrance of what you're about is absolutely key. It does, it does no good if you read a bunch of books or hear a bunch of teachings and then, uh, and then store them sort of at the very superficial intellectual level of memory and go off and forget them in your daily life. They can't possibly work. You may, in a certain sense, remember them that, you know, next week if I gave you a test, you'd say, oh, yes, I remember what Joel said. That's not remembrance in a spiritual uh, sense. Remembrance is remembering in the moment. Remembering in the moment. And there are all sorts of devices and techniques that all spiritual traditions have developed to uh, promote this kind of memory. You've seen uh, uh, the prayer beads used in India, used in Tibet, used in the uh, uh, Catholic Church. Nothing but a memory, uh, a device for memory. 
saying a, uh, a japa uh, in Hindu, or repeating the name of God over and over, uh, unceasing prayer in the Christian tradition, they're all devices for remembering. Praying five times a day as, as the minimum requirement in Islam is to remind yourself five times a day, oh, yes, there's something greater here than, than just me and my little concerns. That's a mystery to find out if you're a Sufi, if you're taking it that way. The church bells that went off in medieval villages all over the Christian world and continue to do so today in, uh, in countries like Mexico, when I go visit my mother all day long in the hour, the church bells are, you know, ringing. It's beautiful. But it's a reminder. A reminder. Whatever. It doesn't matter what device. There's nothing particularly holy about uh, beads or anything else. And if you, and they're unnecessary if you, it's better if you remember just to remember in your head. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't need all that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> very first, very important thing here. If I gave anybody here a, a piece of advice, go as nothing, if you didn't remember it, well, what's the point? Even if you don't understand it, you have to remember it, you see. That's the important thing. Okay. So then I tried to uh, use my imagination to envision what nothing would be like. So um, I usually do a lot of household chores while I'm at my parents, and I was painting the side of the house, and tried to imagine just the wind blowing through the space where I was, or that I was some sort of open window where their words would just pass or, or their energy would just pass without any anything stopping it. That, so. Without a target. Yeah. So. so, again, try here you have a teaching, uh, a little instruction. If the first thing, most important, you have to remember it, but then you have to grapple with it. I've often, often said that during my spiritual path, one of the reasons mine was so fruitful so quickly was that when I would read uh, instructions like this or teachings, uh, for instance, Meister Eckhart saying everything is God, then I would do the same thing. Well, I would take a pillow and I'd put it down in front of me and I would look at it and I'd say, well, now, what? Do, how can I imagine this? What does he mean this pillow is God? You have to actively engage and grapple with the teachings. Wonderful images you came up with. I love that. The, you know, a space where the wind blows through, an open window. I mean, you know, this is, you know, beginning to try to really fathom what does this mean. And at some points when I felt um, emotion come up, like anger, I remember going into my room and closing the door and trying to write that, that scene that I am an open window. And just reiterate that, keep reinforcing it somehow, and and also taking that time alone to retreat. And, and I don't know if that's recentering or trying to pull myself back together, or let myself disperse. I don't know. <laughs> don't don't worry about it. You see, <laughs> yeah, you know, people go. You go home, and there are two. You can take two approaches. One is, well, I just forget about meditation and and all my practices while I'm at home. You know, take a little vacation, and then of course you have conflict and suffering and all those things. Uh, the other one is to go home, but make sure you keep up your meditation practice. Do you know what I mean? And just continue the practice. Mm-hmm. And it is precisely a time of retreat. 
It's a little retreat, mini retreat that you do in the middle of every day. But be careful, you see. We think we know what the purpose of meditation is. We think it's to become centered again, to become peaceful again. And so we approach it that way. But nobody ever told you, I don't think, I've never ever told anybody meditation is all about uh, making yourself peaceful. Uh, the instructions I give in meditation are things like, well, follow your breath. I never said become peaceful. Occasionally I've had said, you will become peaceful. But I've never, that's never been part of some instruction to become peaceful. Now, I'm not being critical of anybody here particularly, because everybody is guilty of this, including myself. We don't hear. The self comes in and reads into the instruction much more than it's there, because the self has its own agenda. It's got the idea, oh, I'm going to become a peaceful, loving self. Oh, this must be what meditation's about. So I'll sit in meditation, and I'll work up becoming a peaceful, loving self. And then I'll be able to carry that out into the world. None of that is in the meditation instruction. It's only really when you start to really fail at that that you begin to realize you can really then start to meditate. You can do what Suzuki Roshi did, uh, advises, when he says, uh, um, and every time you sit down on your meditation pillow, you should have a beginner's mind. A beginner's mind has no idea what's going to happen. Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind is the title of one of his books. And he warns about this in terms of meditation. That, that the meditator, uh, the meditators, uh, brings its, his or her own ideas to the practice and starts practicing with some image, some idea of what this meditation's supposed to produce. How it's supposed to transform me into some other sort of self. All this is created inwardly. It's nothing to do with any of the instructions Suzuki Roshi ever gave or any Zen master ever gave. But, again, by going through this, when you get to the point you find out you see this can't work, that's when you start to really become open to the practice. So, we have uh, memory and grappling with this. Grappling with this. And keeping up the practice, the retreat. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's very important. Then, then what happened? Anything else? Um, I, I uh, allowed myself to look upon this as though I were watching a movie. And everyone had these parts to play. And I would listen to the dialogue. Listen to them talking back and forth and then talking to me. And it was funny because after I left, I caught a greyhound to go to another town, and I listened to the people on the bus. I listened to their dialogue and could also perceive them um, as characters in a play. So it seems rather strange at first, especially when you're doing with your like parents or something you're engaged yeah. with, right? How would how did it feel? I felt very much the observer, just mm -hmm. just. Um, uh, a piece of consciousness happened to be in that location, listening in, watching in. That's called mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Witnessing. That's, yeah. that is mindfulness. You see what I mean? This is mindfulness. It's not doing anything. It's just listening, watching. It has no agenda of its own. It's totally receptive. It's not judging. 
It's not listening for a purpose to judge and say, oh, they're bad people, they're good people. Do you know what I mean? How Look at how petty and mean these people are. Or, you know, look how wonderful they are. It's just listening, just observing. Very much like a scientist is supposed to be, in our culture, have an objective approach to things. We're not bringing any prejudice to a situation. That's not always the case with scientists, but this is sort of an ideal. It is like that. If you want to know how uh, uh, phenomena behaves, naturally, you have to stop interfering with it and just watch it. If you're in there poking around all the time, you'll never see how it actually behaves. You're always seeing how it, how it behaves in relation to your poking around in it. Just leave it alone. Just leave it alone and watch. It feels strange... And I've heard, often heard people complain, oh, it's, it feels, I feel distant, I feel cut off. Oh, this can't be right. That self isn't engaged in there, it isn't in conflict, it isn't in, you know. And, and if you do that, a sense of self starts to get weaker. Something sort of, everything seems spacious and empty, not necessarily in a, in a beautiful way of, we think of their radiance of emptiness, sometimes in a kind of a empty way. No reactions going on. Oh, suddenly, gee, I'm not being reactive. I'm, who am I then? People can, it can be actually kind of frightening. I should be doing something in this situation. I mean, I mean, what should I do? Who am I? Who? But wait a minute. Isn't this what it's all about? Selfless. Very important to, and this isn't the end of the path, by the way. I don't want anybody here to think the end of the path is, is that you're, you're like some sort of, uh, empty room, uh, literally, uh, where, you know, people throw bean bags through or something. But it's a very important stage in developing mindfulness. This is witnessing. This is having that, uh, that ability to observe objectively. And when you can do it with your parents, that's a high-level mindfulness. It's excellent. No, I'm absolutely serious. It is. It's very important. Yes? Well, my parents were just here for a visit, and I treated them like nothing. <laughs> Wait, that's not quite the same thing. <laughs> I, I, it worked great. <laughs> I just, instead of they're always talking and presenting themselves in a certain way and so I'm either reacting to that positively or negatively and I just let them do what they do and watched and uh, we had a great visit and no, there was no conflict and but it was weird because I, I felt like, God, that's just a past life. It was just so far away. And then every once in a while, I sort of like remember my part and go, oh, yeah, now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but this is mindfulness. I mean, I'm, if you say, I treat them as nothing in our culture, that has an <laughs> idiomatic meaning that, of course, we don't mean. But if you treat them as being. Um, uh, without any preconception about what they are, without having some idea that there is some uh, self, some definite sort of thing behind these gestures, these words, do you know what I mean? It's kind of like treating the presentation as nothing. Yeah. 
then then you're actually doing the same thing instead of but instead of in relation to yourself in relation to others it's it's very simple you know um I once saw, I think it was a Jane Goodall, one of her uh, documentaries. Jane Goodall was a woman who went to Africa and studied a lot of African wildlife, uh, particularly uh, chimpanzees and wild dogs. And I've forgotten in one of her shows, uh, she talked about there's this great temptation to interfere. Uh, this one show, I think, was about a, um, it was either the chimpanzees or the wild dogs. Anyway, this, I think it was the chimpanzees, this mother, uh, her, her, a little chimp baby got sick and she was in real mourning for it, you know, and they had a great temptation to go in and, and I don't know, give the baby some antibiotics and, you know, fix it all up. And they realized that if they did this, they would never learn how chimps really are. Do you know what I mean? They would start what they'd be studying as chimps in relation to humans, not chimps, you know, as they are in the wild. And they really had to make a great effort to resist even this uh, wanting to interfere for the best of motives. At a certain point on a spiritual path, you have to make a great effort to resist. You have the best of motives, and you still have to resist. Now, that doesn't mean if you don't, if you find a human baby or an animal suffering, you wouldn't give it penicillin. But we're talking about resisting this, uh, this temptation to, to react from a judgmental point of view, uh, to, to someone else. You have, this requires tremendous humility. And unless there's some immediate, obvious thing that you can do to relieve suffering, let it go. Do you know what I mean? Your parents, as you described to me, are, often make racist comments and, and things that, uh, you know, there's that inward self-righteousness that says, no, I have to defend the minorities of the world here. Well, for a moment, you don't. You know, drop your, your uh, knight in shining armor for just a moment. See, otherwise you'll never see who your parents really are. We always want to charge in because we're always right. As three set, you know, we're always right, so we always want to charge in and right the wrong. Before there's any possibility of doing anything skillful, you have to know, look and see what is actually going on here. So, very important. Okay, so then, back to Mary's song here. So then, uh, anything else to report? Um, I, I felt a certain sense of love. I mean, I looked on my parents with a lot of love, um, not with any idea of changing them in any way, but just a, a real welling up of love, and I think perhaps they felt that toward me too. Where did that come from? I mean, did you have to do a mantra? I love my parents, love my parents. No. Oh. No. Well, how did you generate that love? Well, I put myself in service to them. Um, I, I did a lot of things. A lot of the action I did around there was, was in service you know, to their household and so on. Can you describe maybe just one particular moment when you felt this particularly strongly? Was the, do you remember it was the one particular? Um, my mother and I always have gone mushroom hunting together. So that's why I chose this time of the year to, to go back. 
but she's got arthritis and she's about 70 now and, and can't get around. So I carried a, a lawn chair everywhere in the woods and then I'd set up a chair for her so she could sit down. And I felt that I was giving her something that she truly enjoyed, being in the woods and looking for mushrooms and carrying the chair for her. When we start off on a spiritual path and we realize that being a loving person or having love, that's really going to be what, uh, what the content of happiness we start to try to figure out ways, again, tricks to generate it. How can I be a loving person around somebody who's not very loving or who, who, who doesn't allow me to love them because they're always attacking me, they're always fighting me? It's very simple. When, when you stop uh, being a target for that attack, and when then you stop fighting back in, the, in, the, in that sense from a self-centered position, and you go as nothing, you find a, a, a just a remarkable thing. That nothing is love. That spaciousness, the nature of it is love. In itself. This is why in the Christian tradition, they say God is love. God isn't loving. I mean, that's, that's one way of, a more symbolic, poetic way of looking at it. God loves you. But that's not actually true. God is love. God doesn't love you. There's no difference between God and love. There's no difference between this nothing, this spaciousness, and love. That's its nature. That's its nature. So this, this uh, whole experience that people feel uh, very um, uncomfortable with, this beginning of uh, mindfulness of observing, like you're observing people in a play. Do you know what I mean? When you start to really begin to feel empty in the, in the normal meaning we have in this culture. I mean, you feel empty. You feel like there's nothing there. You feel like there's no life. You feel almost dead. And sometimes going through that, when you get, when the last traces of self begin to uh, evaporate, you begin to see uh, that that itself is actually love. And that will be, start to be expressed emotionally, bodily thoughts, do you know what I mean? Loving thoughts occur, bodily things. I mean, all these are expressions of that love. They aren't that love. So just like there's no way really to um, uh, get rid of self, because there is no self there to begin with, there's no way to become a loving person. And uh, the other thing you learn, most spiritual seekers learn, they spend a lot of time trying to generate all this love, to be compassionate, trying to make themselves over from a, a, a resentful, malicious, hateful, bitter person into a loving, kind, and compassionate person. Again, trans, uh, you know, it's like trading in oneself for the newer model. Between that, when you trade in the old self, but you don't grab on, or grasp onto a new self, you find that's where that is, that compassion is. It's not in any newer model. Once you get the newer model, you're actually not going to know that. You're not going to realize that compassion because you'll be so intent on hanging on to this newer model. 
And, you know, often it's just like a new car where I actually get more suffering because a scratch in your old 10-year-old beat-up, uh, you know, junk heap doesn't bother you, but a scratch in your new car will. If you give up your old car, but don't grab onto a new car. For a moment there, you feel impoverished. What am I going to do without a car? What am I going to do without a self? But that's where the secret is. There's no, no love to generate. Ceasing. Something ceases. Something, some activity ceases, so to speak. That doesn't mean thought cease. That doesn't mean emotion cease. Some other very strange activity. In most traditions is called the activity of delusion. It's just simply a misperceiving. Did you have any anger arise while you were on the, with your parents? I remember one situation where I was sitting in the living room and my father came in and started complaining bitterly of someone else in the family. And um, I really reacted. I said, do I have to listen to this? And he says, what do you want me to do? Just keep it all bottled up inside? <laughs> As though I was someone coming home just to, to listen to. But anyway, I said... It's no fun for me to hear. And he said, well, I guess... It's just like a play. We're reading these lines. <laughs> he said, well, I guess not. And then it just went silent. Which is unusual, too. I mean, usually I take it and I hear it and I get really more and more angry. So I, I countered it and it stopped. If there is no uh, target there, not only will other people's anger not stick, your own anger won't stick. And there's no, nothing to be afraid of. So the anger arises. But where? But what does it have to latch on to? Don't think it's very... I, I'm saying this now because uh, go as no self can often be taken to go and not have any emotional reaction. Right, and, and repress it right. until 30 years later when you're in psychiatric hospital. Yes, but it'll come out. <laughs> <laughs> and But sometimes you go and... and you do want to check your normal um, ways of manifesting things like anger. That's not to say it's good for you to express it and get angry and let it all hang out. It's very different. You want to check your normal, routine, habitual ways of expressing it, but you don't want to check anger. Truly, to go as nothing means anger rises. So what? Our own anger makes us unhappy when there's something there that it, that it sticks to, when there's some identification with it. When I say, this is my anger arising, can you watch your own emotions and your own thoughts just the way you watched your parents and the people on the bus? Can you bring that? Instead of, interf don't interfere with your own body, mind, emotions at all, except to, to check, obviously, destructive, you know, action. But use that, take that same mindfulness and turn it on yourself. Oh, here's Mary's song talking to her father. Here's Mary's song getting angry at her father. I mean, if you're already angry and saying that, okay. Do you know what I mean? I love what she said about it. It was like a script. Some of you may want to try this if you're having an ongoing and difficult uh, relationship with somebody that always falls in the same pattern where you're arguing, you know, 
stop a moment and, and start directing it. Say, oh, wait, oh, could you read that line? You're reading it too loud, and you're not giving me a chance to uh, to top it, you see. I mean, you know, in, in, in drama, a fight has, it can't start at the top. You have to build up to it more slowly to really make it work, you know. So somebody has to just throw off a little insult, and the other person throws it off, and then the tone raises and raises. Do you know what I mean? So you might try to direct one of your arguments. See what happens. It, it, this is, you know, I'm saying this, I, I don't know, I, I've never tried this, so I'm, I'd be interested to know as an experiment <laughs> what happens. But, uh, but no, but don't you see, already you're taking, you have a whole different attitude towards it. You're now a, a true creative actor in the role rather than a robot that's been programmed to go through the part. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm talking about? Yeah. I have tried that. <laughs> well, the last time my whole family got together, there were 12 people there, and they started to have this big fight. And my younger brother, who is an actor, started to direct it like it was a play. <laughs> <laughs> and we got laughing. So I mean, there's some real anger and very serious stuff. We were all laughing with just tears streaming down our face after about ten minutes. It was we kept it up for hours. It was so much fun. Oh, then you fight. Then you fight for the fun of it. <laughs> I'm not the least bit surprised. I've never tried it, but somehow I suspected it would turn into a comedy. <laughs> The difference between tragedy and comedy is uh, is almost minuscule. I, I I've said this before, but I once had a drama teacher who used, to, and I don't remember the stories, but he used to be able to tell a story, and it was a short little story. It took about two or three minutes to tell, and he would tell it one way, and it was kind of sad. I mean, it's a little tragedy. It's about some father dying and his daughter or something. And then he told the exact same story. All the events were the same. All the characters were the same. He, he switched two things around, and it was a joke. I mean, it was literally, you know, with a punchline. You, you know, you laughed at the end. Tra- tragedy and comedy are, are, are two sides of the same coin. Anytime you find yourself in a tragedy, turn it over. You'll see the comedy on the other side. Yeah. We had just the opposite in our family one time. We were all sitting around on a holiday saying, gee, why don't we ever fight like other families? This is <laughs> so we started arguing just for the fun of it about something that had to do with my niece's little girl. And pretty soon we were all arguing about what food she should eat or something ridiculous. We were really warming up to it. <laughs> no, let's not do this. <laughs> but it's an interesting lesson. Uh-huh. It's an interesting lesson. Anyway, to get back to this business about emotions, the next thing you want, you want to be able to watch your own, yourself, quote unquote, just the way you watch your folks. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and see then the whole situation. So here's this consciousness watching, watching dad, watching Mary's song, you know what I mean? Watching mother, you know, watching all this. And all the things, Body's still moving, motions are still happening. Then it's in that space, if you like. That's not the end of it. 
that you then begin to ask yourself, whether you ask it, you know, consciously or not, well, what, where is any self in all of this? What do I mean by self? There are emotions here. There are thoughts here. There are body sensations here. Do you know what I mean? There's color here. There's sound here. There's touch. There's rain here. There's thunder. There's sunshine. All this stuff. But where is there any self? If you ever find a self, please come let me know. I'll turn in my guru card and I'll go back to the world and start making money. <laughs> there isn't one. There isn't one. That's the trick. It seems to me that that which I have called self, I've um, examined as being layers and layers and layers of invisible programming that I've stacked up all the years of my life. And as I'm willing to let those go, then the empty space occurs. That's in the East called karma, uh -huh. roughly speaking. And thank you for reminding me. Because in this, yes, you have to identify what it is you think is yourself. Mm -hmm. It does no good just say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a self and I don't see any self here. You first have to identify what is the conventional self. When we use the word I, we obviously refer to something in a conventional sense. Do you know what I mean? And this, this, and this takes, you know, careful looking. A body. Well, okay. But you watch and you'll see there is a body, but you will never find any self. Uh, emotions. There certainly are emotions. They're not, but who are they happening to? Is one way to look at it. Who's experiencing these emotions? Well, the, the thought will come in your mind, I am. Well, then who, who, where? What is that I? What does that mean, I am? There's awareness and there's emotion. That's where you see, you have to have that objective way of looking at things, that, that extra dimension of awareness, in order to really be able to do this investigation in the height of an argument. Otherwise, you're just wrapped up in the argument. If you can see you, yourself and your father fighting like cats and dogs, and you can also say, now, where is there any self in here? Without, without missing a beat, there's the argument. Great. Hmm. Where is the other, any self on the other side of the fence either, by the way? In your father. Watching thought is probably the most difficult and one of the most important. There is certainly a thought of I. Would you say to your father, I don't, I'm, I don't have much fun listening to this? Right. Okay. What, what does that I refer to? This is why, for instance, Bodhidharma, the, the one who brought Buddhism to China, he only had one disciple. Uh, uh, a disciple with only one arm. He lost it becoming a disciple. He came to Bodhidharma. And he uh, wanted a teaching from Bodhidharma, and Bodhidharma was sitting in a cave and wouldn't even give him the time of day. And so the disciples sat outside the cave in the snowstorms and weather, and Bodhidharma wouldn't even look at him. And finally, the disciple took his sword and cut off his arm and said, Here, Bodhidharma, this is how much I want the teaching. So Bodhidharma said, All right, well, you get to ask one question. And the disciple says, 
Uh, I said, what do you want? And the disciple says, I've heard that you can pacify my mind, pacify myself, make me into a peaceful, loving person, a centered person. Do you know, the kind of person I've always wanted to be. So when I go to my parents' house, I don't get all flustered. And Bodhidharma said, well, bring me that self that you want me to pacify. And the disciple says, well, that's the trouble. Every time I go look for it, I can't find it. And Bodhidharma says, you see, it's already pacified. And he realized there was nothing there to pacify. You see? You see, you have this one little instruction. Go is nothing. And when you actually try to do it, how rich it is. And no, it's very important that you don't quite figure out how it worked or what happened. A miracle seemed to have happened. Now you come back to me and say, well, what's the trick? This is the ego mind coming. You know what I mean? What how I do must, I do it again? Yes, how do I do it again? How do I just continue going as, as nothing? Which is your true self. Just be yourself, nothing. If I, if I make an attempt and I sink into self-doubt or disappointment, that means I am something. No, watch. You're never anything. You watch. Who's this disappointing, uh, disappointment happening to? <clears throat> to whom are these doubts occurring? At a certain point, there's absolutely nothing that won't be... Uh, uh, a welcomed opportunity for inquiry. Welcomed with gratitude. Oh, tremendous self-doubt is coming. So self-doubt can happen even if no one's home? Well, you look into it and see. I tell you there is no one home. You say to me, but I experience self-doubt. That seems like a contradiction. One of us right or one of us wrong. I'm saying you go look into self-doubt. See whether it really is self-doubt. See what it is. And you can do that by saying, to whom is this, who is this self that's doubting? To whom are these doubts occurring? Look into it. Don't ever take my word for it or any mystic's word for it. Because what we say is bananas. There is no self. Yes. I sort of had a little soft dialogue this week that I think um, brought that out for me. When I came back from retreat, my boss called me in at work and said that she had hired a night nurse who, who had no place to live. And she had a, a little girl and two dogs and um, had thought she was going to find something easily. She moved to another state. And she wanted me to take her home, basically, because I have a spare room. Mm-hmm. And so I had to watch all the images, first the image of, of wanting to do my boss a favor and wanting to do this woman a favor. and thinking, well, if I'm a true spiritual seeker, I should be that generous. And yet I have a lot of resistance to this. I don't like dogs that well. And these were two big black labs and things. Mm-hmm. And so I just watched all of these images come up of wanting to be this kind of a person. And then as soon as I'd really get in touch with that image, it would sort of dissipate. 
And at one point, I found that I wanted to blame the woman for having this predicament with her dog. Of course. <laughs> Why does she travel with two dogs if she can't find a place to live? And in the past, I think I would have even gone to people and tried to, to get uh, support for this. And, uh-huh. and as each one of these images mm-hmm. came up, I'd just see it real clearly and let it go. And... Um, and I had doubt about whether, you know, was I being selfish and not wanting to engage this. And I went home and meditated and just said, you know, I, I'm i not getting any clear ideas <laughs> what I should do, so I'll just keep watching. And, you know, basically, you know, I asked the inner guidance to give me a clear direction. And, um, and then just kind of kept letting go of each emotional thing and it sort of peeled away and in the meantime she found the right spot for her and it was sort of taken care of but at another time I would have dashed in and said I have to solve this problem (laughs) again now along the way in a spiritual path it's a good practice to do that to go you know against it's a remedial thing you've always been you know protective of your privacy well throw your doors open for a while see what happens do you know what I mean But it's not then becoming a crusader in that sense, that now you're going to run off and save the world. There are situations that, uh, that, you know, there's skillful means are, uh, uh, work through and there are situations that they won't. When you can look at the overall situation without any self, where there's no agenda, it becomes quite clear, uh, quite quickly, at least for that relative moment, whether you and a conventional self can do anything or not, without any guilt or anything else. Do you know what I mean? That's and I you can say no if you can't. I mean, if you know, or or you say yes. And either one, in either case, there's no problem. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. It, no, the life's decisions no longer. Your happiness no longer depends on life's decisions. Yes or no. It's no longer a binary situation. Happiness isn't a switch that gets turned on and off if you make or don't make the right decision. The decisions are made out of that space of happiness and compassion. And so no matter which decision you make is the, quote, right decision, ultimately. Yeah, it felt much more spacious than it would have been Mm -hmm. at the time. Go as nothing is simply to say is go as who you truly are or what you truly are. It's just a teaching about be yourself, which is no self. I think uh, one of the most beautiful and simple expressions of the end of the whole spiritual path was given by um, a Tibetan Lama who's, uh, oh, it was um, Kalu Rinpoche. Uh, who's deceased now, very, very respected, very wise Tibetan Lama, who said, was asked, is there an end to the spiritual path? And he said, yes, there is an end to the spiritual path. He says, when you realize you are nothing, and in being nothing, you are everything. Go as nothing. You'll see your everything. Any final questions or comments?
I think it's very good to, uh, I think, I thank you very much, Mary Song, because to actually take someone's experience unfolding, you know what I mean? To see how the teaching works in relation to that is really the whole key to a spiritual path. We've just got finished reading Lali Shwari, and um, she's a great Hindu mystic in our Wednesday group. And she says uh, in one of her verses, I uh, read the spiritual teachings and I put them into practice. That's her whole secret. That's the whole secret. She put them into practice. She actually tried to practice them. She didn't wait until she understood them all. She didn't understand any of them. She practiced first. Then she came to understand. And that's exactly what you did, and it's a, it's a shining example to anybody who wants to uh, go on a spiritual path. So thank you. In the meantime, everybody's welcome to stay and have tea and check out the library, as usual, and peace to you all.